Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is that every believer would not just attend church, but also hear from God daily through His Word. As we read the Bible, we begin to see how God responds to things. Doing daily devotions repatterns the way we think, transforms the spirit of our mind, and helps us become more like Jesus. Join us here, Monday through Friday, as various pastors and leaders at Fusion Church share devotion and teaching through that day's soap scripture. Download the current soap reading plan at fusionchurch.cc soap. Good morning to you folks. Good to see each of you today, uh, that we can jump into God's word and let him speak to us. Why don't we stretch a minute? Uh, that always gets you an opportunity to, uh, uh, that's it. Very good, Kathy. You're doing a nice job there. Let me see how it's the rest of you. The rest of you that are not stretching, I'm assuming that you're wide awake and you're ready to roll. So <clears throat> let's take a minute and let's pray. And let's open our hearts that God can speak into our spirits. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for this brand new day. We thank you for your presence, Lord, uh, as we come into this Bible study. And Lord, we just pray that these words would not just be on a piece of paper today, <clears throat> but you would take them, Lord, and take them off the page and put them on our hearts. And Lord, I pray you would emphasize and highlight to each of us the portion of Numbers 21 that you're trying to get through to us today. So Father, give us ears to hear uh, eyes to see and a heart to respond, Lord. So we thank you and uh, we thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do in each one of our lives. Amen. Okay, let's jump in. Numbers 21. <clears throat> when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Nevgah, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atham, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus, the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now the sons of Israel moved and camped in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Akbarim in the wilderness, which is opposite Moab to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zephyr. From there they journeyed and camped to the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, 
between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it's said in the book of wars of the Lord, Wahab and Sipaf. Well, these are interesting words uh, to get out here. And the wadis of the Arnon and the slope of the wadis that extends to the site of Ar that leans to the border of Moab. And from there, they continued to bear, that is the well, where the Lord said to Moses, assemble the people that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, <clears throat> spring up, O well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness, they continued to Manahan, and from Manahan to Nathiel, and to Nathiel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley that is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. Then Israel sent messengers to Sidon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We'll not turn off into the field or vineyard. We'll not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sidon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sinan gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jacob, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jason. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all her villages. From Heshbon, was the city of Shidon, the king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who use Proverbs saying, Kandad Peshvam, let it be built, so let the city of Sidon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the tower of Sidon, it devoured Ur of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You're ruined. O people of Chemosh, he has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to the Amorite king, Sinon. But we have cast them down. Ashbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid west even to Nohoth, which reaches to Meba. Thus, Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazar. And they captured the villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went out by way of Bashan. And Og the king of Bashan went out with all his people for battle at Edron. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land. And you saw to him as you did to Shedan, king of the Amorites who lived in Hashbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. Whew. Okay. Yeah, we got to do that afterward. Uh, some interesting words there to pronounce. Okay. As we look at uh, Numbers 21, we're continuing on the journey of Israel. So going through the wilderness, heading toward the promised land. So we're in that journey. And uh, we'll look at that, but we're also looking where God judges the Israelite people, and he also judges the enemies of Israel. So we're going we're to see some judgment today. Uh, and um, 
let's look first at, at God's judging Israel's enemies. So 21.1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Anthem from then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Now, so that's interesting. So they're being attacked and Israel needs a lot of help. So they make a vow to God. Okay. I mean, we're not playing games, God. We really need your help. And if you do this, we'll do that. Okay. Two. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel, delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus, the name of the place was called Harmon. Okay. So, this is like a pretty tough discipline and punishment uh, that God sanctioned. Israel says, Lord, uh, if you let us defeat them, we're going to wipe them out totally. Uh, and God seems to be okay with that, okay? And basically, they utterly destroyed everything of the enemy. And that's a little bit hard when we hear in the Bible over and over again that God is a God of love and God is a God of compassion. Uh, if that be the case, then what's the scoop here, Lord? It doesn't look very compassionate or tender, you're allowing them to wipe out and obliterate the whole enemy. And that's very similar. There's an interesting statement here. Uh, a similar occasion occurs, but it's, it's a flip-flop uh, in 1 Samuel 15. Here, Israel, in Numbers 21, says, God, can we wipe them all out? God says, yep. But it's reversed in 1 Samuel 15. God actually commands the Israelites to wipe out completely the enemy. So listen to this one. Uh, this is 1 Samuel 15, and it says, Then Samuel, he's a prophet, said to Saul, a king, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'll punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and get this and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. That's pretty heavy. God says, wipe out the entire deal. So I could see, you know, wiping out the adults. The, the men, particularly, the, that are fighting the war, the women. But, but God says, no, wipe out the kids. Wipe out the whole population. In fact, wipe out even all the animals. <clears throat> and I know when I read that uh, back many years ago, I thought, wow, man, oh, man, this is, this is a little bit hard to swallow here, Lord. What's, what's the deal? Again, you're supposed to be loving and compassionate. And here, I mean, even kids are being wiped out. So that, that bothered me. And, uh, you know, how could I reconcile that kind of a statement with a God of love? So I began to dig. And sometimes in Bible studies, you, you need a little help, okay? You need to go back to uh, some commentaries 
of people that have studied very hard. They try to go back to the historical context. They study the culture. Uh, and sometimes we just have to dig a bit to get a context why certain things happen. So as I researched that, I found out uh, that these Canaanites were extremely, extremely heathen and had heathen practices. Uh, and there was a lot, a lot of venereal disease in these foreign people. Uh, their practices were very, very rude and crude and just, they were infected, literally. So I think what uh, the commentator said that helped me is that God realized that because these enemies were polluted literally with a venereal disease, that they needed to be wiped out because if they weren't, and the Israelites began to intermarry with them, the Israelites in turn would be wiped out because they would be infected by this particular disease and they would die off. But not only I think did God say, wipe them out because they needed to be physically preserved. I think God also said, you gotta wipe them out because they worship foreign gods that are totally cruel. Some of these gods said, sacrifice your children, throw them in the fire. I mean, they had very bizarre pagan practices. And in certain cases, I think God said, you have to obliterate them because if you do, not only are you gonna be physically in harm, you could take on their ways, you could worship their foreign gods, and then you're gonna really go down the tubes. Uh, so I think God is basically saying uh, that ultimately he is doing a good thing for them. He is trying to preserve them physically. He's trying to preserve them spiritually. And that's why he said, you've got to wipe them out. Because if you don't wipe them out, they're going to wipe you out. And guess what, Israel? If you're wiped out, then the Messiah can never be born because he comes from the Jews. And if the Jews are done, there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, there's no Savior. And guess what? We are then in a major mess. So... I think we have to see that in the short little picture here, God looks very cruel and God looks very harsh. But in the big picture, God had a big enough perspective that he needed to do this. So in the long run, he could bring good out of that situation. So uh, I think uh, that's something we need to basically hang on to. In the short picture, sometimes we wonder like, well, what is going on here? Uh, I don't know about you, but at times in my life, when I've been through the fire and the, the tough times, there's times that thought comes to my mind, God, I mean, you, you feel like you're, you're being very cruel to me. Like, why, Lord, are you allowing me to suffer? Why are you allowing me to go through pain? Maybe you folk don't wrestle with this stuff. But I know there's times that thoughts come through my mind, like, well, what is the deal? Why are you putting me through this experience? It is extremely painful. It doesn't feel like you're loving. It doesn't feel like you're kind. It doesn't feel like you're compassionate. Uh, but I think we need to realize God allows the hard times because he is seeking a greater good in the big picture. Let me say it again. God, I believe, allows hard times because from his infinite perspective, the hard times are ultimately going to produce a greater good in our lives. That greater good could be many things. 
It could be bringing us closer to the Lord because in the hard times, we push into him like we don't do when the, the sun is shining. Not only may the hard times bring us closer, but I think more and more they make us like Jesus. They break our confidence in ourselves and they replace our confidence in us to our confidence in the Lord. So God looked like he was doing something cruel to them. You may feel he's doing something cruel to you, but in the long run for them and us, God is working good even through the struggles and the pains. Before I go on, let me just say a little bit more where people, I've heard this over the years, say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. He's a judging God. And the God of the New Testament, that he's a God of love. And if you study carefully the Old Testament and the New, you'll see God's character is consistently the same. In the Old Testament, yes, God is judging like we saw, but there's tremendous love, tremendous love as God leads the people, as he provides for the people, as he forgives the people. God pleads with them as a good parent would with his child. So in the Old, there's judgment, but there's also love and kindness. In the New, we see obviously the love of God through Jesus and through the message of the good news. But by the way, folks, in the New Testament, God is also God of judge. Uh, if you look at uh, Jesus as he interrelates with the Pharisees, uh, he wasn't happy with them. And sometimes he confronted them and basically said, hey, guess what? You better turn around or you're going to go to hell. Uh, if you remember when Jesus entered the temple and the people were turning it into a business place and ripping people off, uh, Jesus wasn't all warm and fuzzy. Hey, he took a whip and he started to, to go at the money changers and he overturned their tables. So God is the same in old and new. He is loving in the old. He is judging in the old, but he is exactly the same in the new. So <clears throat> he begins to judge uh, these foreigners. He judged the Canaanites. If you look at verse uh 21, he also judged the Amorites. Then Israel sent messengers to Sidon, king of the Amorites, saying, let it be pass through your land. We'll not turn off into the field or the vineyard. We will not drink water from your wells. We'll go by the king's highway until we pass through your border. Basically, Israel said, look, just, just let us go. We're going to the promised land. We're not going to mess with you. We're not going to touch your wells. We're not going to take your crops. Just let us travel through. Uh, but the king of the Amorites, Sidon, it says 23, would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sidon gathered all his people, went out against Israel in the wilderness, and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And here the Amorites are judged. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword, took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Jahaz. So God judges the Canaanites in 21.1. God judges the Amorites in verse uh, 21. And then he judges the people of Bashan. If you look at verse 33. The, then they, the Israelites, turned and they went up by way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Endria. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand. 
and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Shinon king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. And here's the deal again. They wipe him out. So they killed him, his sons, and all his people until there was no remnant left him and they possessed the land. Okay. So God judges the enemies of Israel because of their willingness to do what they want to do, but their unwillingness to help Israel. But God is a fair God. Not only did he judge the enemies of Israel, he judged Israel themselves. Okay, so when his people went astray, God is a good parent, how to discipline them and judge them and at times punish them. Look at that uh, idea when we look at verse four. Here are the people of Israel. Then they set out from Mount Horeb by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. Now I'm looking at that and it's like, what is the problem with these people? I mean, what's the deal? God literally gave them a pillar of fire by night, a, a pillar a cloud at day. God was leading them step by step. God met their every need. Okay. He supplied their physical needs, the water, the food. The Bible says that their, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. I mean, he took good care of them. But, but we know the terrain uh, is tough over there. It's very tough. Uh, it's, it's kind of barren. Uh, it's like a desert to a level. Uh, and the terrain's tough. The journey goes on. And they begin to drag. And they begin to be impatient. Uh, and they begin to get wound up. So um, let me say this. It's okay, I think, to get uh, our feelings out with the Lord and to be honest with him. I think he, he cherishes an honest conversation with us. And I, you look at the Psalms, and sometimes the psalmist says, How long, O Lord? Come on, Lord, how long, how long are you going to let me go through this situation? How long? How long? How long, Lord? When are you going to change things? Lord, when are you going to heal me? I've been praying and praying. Lord, I'm still sick. Lord, I'm financially strapped. Like, come on, Lord, when's the job going to come up? How long? Help me, Lord. Uh Lord, what about this broken relationship? God, it hurts. How long? So I think, I think we can be um, honest with God and tell him our struggles. I think that's appropriate. Uh, in a sense, we're trying to process our impatience, okay? I think we can tell God, Lord, oh, help, help, help. But, uh, but. We've got to watch the next step. The Psalms portray an honest struggle with God, but then there's a step over and we go over the line and it's not a good picture because that's when we begin to whine and when we begin to complain. And I know I've been there in my life 
where I'm sure I know I've whined and complained. And I can't imagine anybody on the screen that somewhere along the way has not, unless you are a saint, an absolute saint uh, that's never complained to God and got uh, angry uh, and very frustrated with him. And you can see uh, that's what happens. So they became impatient. Look at verse five. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now they went over the line. Now they're whining. Now they're complaining, and they say there's no food, no water. Guess what? They went tomorrow. The water was bitter. God said, throw a piece of wood in it, and God gave them water. God did provide. He brought water out of the stone. I think God says, look, when you hit a hardship, for heaven's sake, remember what I did for you before. I took care of the problem before. If you come into a shortage and a problem and a need in your life, remember what I did in the past, and I'll do that for you again. Remember what I did. And they don't. They just whine. They complain like, what's the deal, God? There's no water, no food. And then they're not happy with manna. Even though it was supply, you know, supplying their, their basic need for food, it says, and we loathe this miserable food. Oh, my, they are whining in a major way. And guess what? God wasn't happy with their attitude. He wasn't happy. Look at what happens in verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay. Uh, well, they're kind of beginning to reap what they sowed. They were complaining. They were rebelling. They had an attitude. Uh, not a good picture. Uh, and God allows them basically uh, to reap what they're sowing. And if you do a little research, again, commentaries help uh, to dig a little deeper. Uh, these particular serpents were very deadly. There was no antidote to that. Uh, this particular bite of this type of serpent would kill people, and, and it was an agonizing, painful death. So it's not a good picture at all. Uh, they are very, very much disciplined. And, you know, um, it, it basically is an attitude of Israel. Uh, if you look at uh, Psalm 78, you can look it up somewhere down the road, but you might want to mark it down. Here's just a little picture of Israel. And it says this, uh, 7840, for they often rebelled against him in the wilderness. Guess what? They've been rebelling. They're, they're reaping the consequences. They often rebelled against God in the wilderness. They grieved him in the desert. I think that's interesting. They grieve. They 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 grieve God. They hurt Him. They didn't trust Him. They didn't obey Him. You know, God is not some kind of a remote deity that has no feelings. God has feelings, and God was grieved. It hurt God that His people wouldn't trust Him and wouldn't obey Him. And it says in forty-one, and again and again, they tempted God. They pained the Holy One of Israel. Think about it. We can pain God. We can pain God by the way we 
we think. We can paint God by the, the words that come out of our mouth as we complain and find fault with him. We can paint God by some of the actions that we do. God basically says, I feel your negative attitudes. And, and why did everything go south? Why did they complain? Verse 42 of Psalm 78. They did not remember his power, the day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zone. I hear God saying, basically, you know, like, you don't remember. Don't you remember, Israel, as you're going through all this? I know you're having a hard time. Don't you remember what I did in Egypt? I sent the plagues against the Egyptians. You saw miracles, Israel. You saw what I did. These 10 plagues of judgment against Egypt. Don't you remember that I did that? And I hear God say, don't you remember I opened up the Red Sea? Literally, don't you remember that I opened the sea? You walked you walk through a miracle. Don't you remember that I wiped out the Egyptians as they pursued you? Israel, remember what I did for you. Remember. And I think that basically, um, that's, I think, what God says to us in our hard times. When we, we get to the idea that, oh, God, this is terrible, and I'm complaining, I'm caught in my own little world, and life isn't going the way I want, and God seems to be cruel, I think God says, remember, stop it, remember what I've done. For the Israelites, that would have been the opening of the Red Sea and the judgment on Egyptian gods. And in our case, I think God says, when you go through the hard times, remember, I've been faithful in the past. Remember what I did here. Remember how I saved you there. Remember I heard your prayer there. Remember how I got you through this time and this hard time and this struggle. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. And I think it's easy for us. With all the Bible, with all the Old Testament, all the New, it's still possible that we can become impatient. And it's possible that we can begin to complain against God with all the facts that we know biblically. And I think God says, remember, remember, remember what I've done. Remember. Well, the serpents bite the Israelites. Uh, and the people kind of like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, we did it now. We're in a mess. We better get our act straight. If you look at seven, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So they basically wake up and say, okay, God, we have sinned. We have messed up. We are sorry. And I think, again, <clears throat> when we're disciplined by God and we go through the hard times, we also need to remember if we've sinned and got an attitude and whined and complained like the Israelites, we need to repent like they did and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have responded that way. I should have trusted you. I should have obeyed you. Even if I didn't understand it all with my brain, you're faithful and you're worthy of my trust. I'm sorry, Lord for my attitudes of complaint. Uh, and basically, um, God hears the people and makes a response to their cry. 
Uh, look at verse eight. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. He lived. So basically, I think what the Lord said is, okay, look at that serpent. It's an ugly thing. And that ugly thing, remember that it got you in trouble. Remember when you see the serpent in a very real way, I think the serpent, in a sense, biblically represents the devil. Uh, and we see that in the garden uh, in Genesis. So I think God says, look at this serpent. It caused you pain. Look at this serpent. In a sense, it's an evil thing. Look at it. Repent. Come to me. Trust me. Uh, and basically, Moses makes the serpent as they looked at it. God healed them. Now, what's interesting to me, this is just a little sidebar, how messed up Israel can get. Here's a, here's a, a, a serpent on a pole for a specific lesson to Israel. But if you want to see how messed up it gets, uh, let me just give you this one. Uh, this is in 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 3 and 4. Now, Hezekiah, this is a king of Judah. And listen to what he did. It said, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah. These are all foreign uh, practices, you might say. Now, get this. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incest to it, and it was called Nebashah. Think of it. The Israelites at points burned incense. They worshiped the crazy pole with a serpent on it. And that was never the point. So it's so easy for Israel to stray and almost get into a, a pagan practice at that point. Uh, but as we're wrapping up here, there's another reference to this serpent thing. And I don't know if you're aware of it. Uh, but in the New Testament, Jesus is talking uh, to Nicodemus. And notice uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. As Jesus is giving his message, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So I think he's making a reference. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, okay, Moses lifted up the serpent, and as they looked at it, that they were healed. And I believe that Jesus is saying, instead of the serpent being lifted up, I'm going to be on the cross. And I think he said, in a sense, when you look at that and you're putting me on the cross, you're seeing the work of the serpent because who was the one that wanted Jesus on the cross was the devil. So in a sense, when we look at the cross, we're seeing this hatred of the devil trying to obliterate the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But not only that, 
when we look at the cross and we see Jesus there, we see the evilness of mankind. Think of it, that the human race could literally kill and torture the most loving human being that ever walked the earth. That's really sick. Jesus was the most loving, compassionate, caring person. And what did the human race do? We took him on a cross and we crucified him and caused him tremendous pain. When we ponder that, I think ideally that should put a heart of repentance in us and say, God, how could we ever do that as a human race? How could we ever, ever, ever do that to this amazing person that you sent? You sent him, and here's what we did. We killed him. I think as Jesus says, that ponder that. It should cause a heart of repentance. Uh, but it then goes further, and this is an amazing verse. Because when we look at the cross, not only do we see the evilness of the devil who tries to kill Jesus, not only do we see the evilness of the human race, we see the unbelievable love of the Father and the Son for us. And it leads into this amazing verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says this, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God so loved the world. But make it more personal. God so loved, and you can put your own name in there. God so loved. Nicole, God so loved Patrick, God so loved Lynetta, God so loved Valerie, Olivia, Yolanda, Doug, Beth, Mike, Kathy, June. We could go on and on. Make it personal. God so loved you that he gave his very best. He didn't just send an angel. He sent his own son to die on a cross to put our broken lives back together again. Folks, that's the good news we have as a Christian. That God loved you. He pursued you. God loved me. He pursued me to the point of sending his own son to pay the price so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought back into a relationship with him, so that we could have an intimate fellowship so that we could return in a sense to the Garden of Eden and walk with him every day, experiencing his love, his peace, and his joy in increasing measures. So if you've never opened your heart, and I, I would trust most of us on the screen have, if you've never received this amazing love of God and known his forgiveness, and knowing his forgiveness, surrender, just surrendered your life to him, if you've never done that, what a day to do that today. Brothers and sisters, we have an amazing message. God loved us so much. Yeah, he's a God of judgment. He has to judge sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. Jesus had to die on a cross because God had to judge sin. And his son took our sin to make us whole. 
May we share that amazing message wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you uh, for Numbers 11. We know, Lord, it, it, this, there's an amazing uh, combination of judgment and yet love, of compassion and yet discipline. And Lord, we just, we just see the Israelites, Lord, uh, they dropped the ball so many times. They whined, they complained, uh, and it pained you. And Father, uh, we just ask your forgiveness today, Lord, where we may have pained you or where we are doing that even now, Lord. We, we ask your forgiveness, Lord, for our unbelief, uh, Lord, for times when we just give into our doubts and we begin to whine and complain. Lord, we ask your forgiveness, not only for our unbelief, but for the times we've just been rebellious and just told you to take a hike and we wanted to do our own thing. So Lord, I just pray like a big bandit today that you would draw us back to you. Help us to ponder, Lord, the cross that on the cross, you showed your heart, that you're for us, that you're not against us, and that you want to put our brokenness back together into your wholeness, Lord. So Lord, put a blessing upon each of us. Uh, use each of us, Lord, to be a bright light in a dark world. Help us to share some good news with somebody, Lord, this day that may be in the dumps or discouraged or wrestling with anxiety or depression, or whatever. May we be that light for them. And we pray, Jesus, in the power that's in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day, folks. God bless you all, and we'll catch you soon.